Welcome to Animal Rights, the Abolitionist Approach Commentary. I'm Gary Francione. This is our eighth No Frills, No Bells, No Whistles podcast concerning the abolition of animal exploitation, ethical veganism as the moral baseline of the animal rights movement, creative nonviolent vegan education as the primary form of vegan activism, and the general importance of the principle of nonviolence in all of our advocacy efforts. Well, there's been a great deal of discussion on and off the internet about the meaning of the abolitionist approach to animal rights. Particularly, there are discussions going on about whether you can be an abolitionist and still embrace welfare reform, or whether you can be an abolitionist and still embrace violence. Now, if you go to our our website, abolitionistapproach.com, and you click the uh, About button, you can see that there are six principles of the abolitionist approach, and several of these principles deal with welfare reform and violence, and talk about how the abolitionist approach rejects uh, both welfare reform and violence. And so the question becomes, can you be an abolitionist and still embrace welfare reform and violence? Well, I suppose that depends on what you mean by can. Can you? Sure. Uh, It's still a relatively free country, and you can claim that Barack Obama is not a citizen or that he's a socialist. Uh, You can claim all sorts of crazy things, Uh, but the fact that you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it. I suggest that it makes no more sense to say that you're an abolitionist who embraces welfare reform or violence as it does to say that you believe in atomic theory but that you reject the existence of atoms or that you're a theist but you don't believe in the existence of God or that you're an atheist but you do believe in the existence of God. The rejection of welfare reform and violence are integral to the abolitionist approach to animal rights in the same way that atoms are integral to atomic theory. Okay, let me explain why. First, let's start with the point about welfare reform. Now, the abolitionist approach explicitly rejects welfare reform. Now, why is that? Well, there are both theoretical and practical reasons for rejecting welfare reform. The theoretical reason is that if we cannot justify animal use at all, then it makes no sense to put our time, effort, and resources into campaigning for what is called humane animal use. I, I, by the way, do not think that animal welfare reform results in anything that can coherently be described as humane, but that's beside the point. The theoretical point is simple. If animal use cannot be morally justified, then we ought not to be putting our time, effort, and resources into regulating a use that we agree is morally unjustifiable. We should not be seeking to regulate a practice that we have agreed is morally unjustifiable. Now, we can see this easily when we talk about humans. Let's look at the issue of rape. Rape is a big problem. It's been going on forever and it continues to go on and it's a pretty, unfortunately, it's a pretty frequent occurrence. So it's not that it's some sort of aberration that doesn't occur very often. It occurs all the time. We agree it's morally wrong. We do not agree or believe in the notion of humane rape. We don't campaign for humane rape, even though it's a constant problem, even though it, it's a problem that that is pervasive in all societies. We don't have campaigns for humane rape. We don't have we don't have efforts to to enact regulations to make rape a more humane practice. 
The same thing with child molestation. The same thing with torture. If we think torture is wrong, and, and unfortunately not all of us do, but many of us do, for those of us who think torture is wrong, we don't spend our time, effort, and resources campaigning to make sure that people who are waterboarded are strapped onto a padded waterboard. No, we take the position that there should be no torture at all. That's what we put our advocacy efforts into. So as a theoretical reason, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, as a theoretical matter, there's simply something terribly wrong with maintaining that a practice that you think is morally unjustifiable should be regulated with campaigning for it, with, 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 with advocating for uh, regulating a practice that you maintain is immoral. And I think, frankly, to the extent that we do this in the animal context and we would never think of doing it in the human context really does show how speciesist even a lot of animal people are. And again, it's not meant to insult them. It's just meant to describe a phenomenon. We don't have campaigns for humane rape. We don't have campaigns for humane child molestation. We don't have campaigns for humane torture. But we do have campaigns for humane animal use. So I suggest that that disparity is uh, something that should trouble us. And to call it speciesist, I think, is completely justifiable. Now, there are also practical problems with animal welfare. Animal welfare doesn't work. Animals are property. They're economic commodity. It costs money to protect their interests. And under the system of animal welfare, we end up protecting animal interests only when it provides us an economic benefit. Virtually all animal welfare reform makes production the production of animal products, more efficient. It's been that way from the beginning of animal welfare reform in the 19th century. It continues to this day. For example, the campaigns for controlled atmosphere killing uh, with, uh, with uh, poultry, that's the, uh, the campaign to try to get Kentucky Fried Chicken and other institutional users to uh, gas chickens rather than to stun them electrically, or the campaign for gestation crates, are very much focused on the fact that these different forms of exploitation will be more economically beneficial for animal producers. So this sort of, of reform does nothing. And by the way, you know, the, the, the comments I just made reflect probably 15 years of my work. I mean, this is the, the topic of my book, Animals, Property, and the Law. I've written a, a great many papers on this. Uh, there are things on, on the website that you can read. So I'm not going to repeat everything I've said for the past umpteen years about this, but I've written a great deal. I've done a great deal of research into this, and it's absolutely clear that animal welfare reform is basically, animal welfare reform occurs when the reform is economically beneficial. That basically we don't purchase more protection than we need to purchase in order to exploit the animals in an economically efficient way. We don't spend more money than we absolutely have to 
in order to exploit those animals. So welfare reforms generally make production, the production of animal products, cheaper or more efficient. They're in the interest of institutional users. Animal welfare reform does nothing to take animals outside of the property paradigm. Indeed, it enmeshes them further in it. Industry will make these changes anyway because they are in the interests of industry to do so. Indeed, a good argument could be made that many of these reforms that are being campaigned for would be instituted earlier if it weren't for the fact that they were not the focus of animal welfare campaigns because industry does not want to be seen to be giving in to animal advocates because even if it's in the economic interests of industry to do so, to give in and to not impose a cost on animal advocates who are promoting some reform or other will be to invite other reforms that might not be in the interests of industry. I should also say say this, factory farm, intensive agriculture, uh, factory farming, whatever you want to call it, is something that started in the 1950s. It is only now, really, that we are beginning to see the economic inefficiencies of animal welfare, animal of, uh, of industrial agriculture. Industrial agriculture was based on the notion that if you can make $10 of profit by having 10 animals in a space, uh, you can make $100 of profit by having 100 an animals in a space. And that thinking never uh, took into account that animals are sentient beings that suffer stress and that there are all sorts of problems when you put animals into these very, very stressful situations and that these problems cost money to fix. And so it is only recently that agricultural economists have begun to identify practices that are economically inefficient, like the veal crate. Veal crate's a very economically inefficient way of producing veal because it, it results in considerable veterinary costs for producers. Same thing with the gestation crate. There are alternatives to the, to the gestation crate that are much more cost-effective for producers, like the electric sow feeding operation. Uh, the controlled atmosphere killing uh, method uh, is much more uh, cost-effective for producers, even though it costs money to get that equipment in. Uh, once once you've basically expensed out the the capital cost of the equipment, uh, the the actual cost of slaughtering goes down considerably. So. But these are these are are things that agricultural economists are only beginning to realize. And what's happening is, as they identify economically vulnerable practices, the animal welfare groups sort of jump on the bandwagon because they read these journals the same way everybody else does, and 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 they jump on the bandwagon and they start going after what they themselves call the low hanging fruit, the things that have been identified by the industry as economically vulnerable, and they form campaigns around them. But these are practices that are going to go by the wayside anyway. Indeed, uh, Roger Yates um, of the University of Wales and University College in Dublin and I are just finishing up a, um, a short paper that we will be making available on the Internet about this uh, this very phenomenon that basically uh, if if 
that, that animal welfare reforms are things that are going to happen anyway. Industry is going to do those things anyway. We don't really need all these campaigns. Um, and that, uh, that, that, that these sorts of reforms are going to be things that they will do anyway because they are in their economic interest in doing so. So when you ask, can I be an abolitionist who embraces welfare reform, what you're really asking is, if I support animal welfare reform, will it lead incrementally to abolition? Well, that was the subject of a book I wrote in 1996 called Rain Without Thunder, in which I identified the phenomenon of new welfareism, the the idea that, well, we'll, we'll continue to uh, pursue welfare reform just as we have uh, in the past, but we're going to try to be more progressive about it, and, we're, and, and, and it's going to lead incrementally to abolition. That's what I call new welfareism. Uh, it differs from old welfareism in that the traditional welfareist sought to regulate animal use but never really thought about abolishing animal use and never had as a goal abolishing animal use. The new welfareist claims, or at least some of the new welfareists claim, to want to see the abolition of animal exploitation and believe that welfare reform will lead to animal to uh, uh, the abolition of, of animal exploitation. Uh, let me say this. There is absolutely no empirical evidence, not one single bit of empirical evidence, that regulating animal well that the regulating animal use will lead to abolition. And the proof of this is that we've had animal welfare for two hundred years now. And at various points in history, both in the in the United States and in Great Britain, it's been fairly aggressive. But we've had animal welfare for 200 years now. We're using more animals now in more horrific ways than at any point in the history of humankind. Animal welfare is not leading to the abolition of anything. It's making people more comfortable about animal use. And that is absolutely clear. Let me ask you this. Why do you think that all of these animal welfare organizations are sponsoring these branding programs where various happy products are being given you know, uh, stamps of approval. And, and almost all of the large organizations support one or more of these brands. I mean, you have the, uh, well, there are a lot of them, and uh, both here and in Britain, and, and virtually all of the large organizations. And I have information about this on abolitionistapproach.com, virtually all of these organizations support these branding programs. Why do you think they do that? They do that because they are, uh, they're trying to make people feel more comfortable about consuming happy animal products. This is, this is what, they wouldn't be doing this if they didn't think that they were making people more comfortable about consuming animal products uh, by telling them that these products have been made in accordance with various welfare reforms. So I, I think that, you know, the, 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 the whole notion of, well, can I be a, an abolitionist and still support welfare reform? You've missed the point. You've missed the point. If you say you're an abolitionist who supports welfare reform, you have really missed the point. And the point that you've missed is welfare reform doesn't lead to abolition. There is no evidence that it will lead to abolition. Indeed, there is quite a bit of evidence, 
And indeed, there is an assumption that is being made by all of the large animal welfare organizations that it will lead people to be more comfortable about exploiting animal products. So, and, and animal welfare reform basically provides virtually no protection to animal interests. It only provides protection for animal interests when it's economically beneficial for us to do so. You know, it is very, very uh, disconcerting to me to be reading uh, various animal advocates, Peter Singer and, and uh, included, uh, and, and, and particularly, saying that there's a trend to abolish the most abusive or the most horrific aspects of intensive agriculture. That's just nonsense. That's just absolute nonsense. Animals are being tortured. I don't care whether they're being tortured in slaughterhouses that are approved by Temple Grandin uh, and PETA or whatever, and I don't really care whether they're being sold by Whole Foods. It doesn't matter. These animals are being tortured, and it's simply disingenuous at best to suggest that there have been any changes that have made the production of animals in any sense, in any significant sense, more humane. In any event, those changes are never going to go beyond what is necessary to ensure that animals are exploited in an economically efficient way. So to say that you're an abolitionist who supports animal welfare reform means you've missed the point. You've missed the point that animal welfare doesn't work. And if you want to maintain that you're an abolitionist who embraces welfare reform, then the burden's on you to show that welfare reform will lead to abolition. To say that you are an abolitionist who embraces welfare reform is like saying that you are somebody who embraces gender equality but believes that certain forms of exploiting women will lead to gender equality. Okay, now we come to the question of whether the abolitionist approach to animal rights is consistent with violence to humans or property destruction that harms humans or non-humans. As I've remarked before, I regard violence as inherently immoral. However, you do not need to agree with me on that point to see that the use of violence in this context, in terms of uh, abolishing animal exploitation, makes no sense whatsoever. Let's think about it for a second. If we were to close 10 slaughterhouses today and the demand for meat remained the same, that demand would be met by other suppliers. If we closed 10 furriers today and the demand received, re remained the same, that demand would be met by other suppliers. If we close 10 corporate providers of animals for those who use uh, them in vivisection, and the demand remained the same. That demand would be satisfied by other suppliers. The abolitionist approach to animal rights focuses on the demand side of things, not on the supply side of things. Violence against institutional users and suppliers will not do anything to achieve or facilitate the abolition of animal exploitation. Nothing, 
Nothing whatsoever. The only thing, the only thing that will work as a practical matter is to affect demand. The abolitionist approach to animal rights focuses on demand. The abolitionist approach to animal rights maintains that only through creative, nonviolent, vegan education can we do anything to affect demand and shift the paradigm away from the notion of animals as property and toward the notion of animals as moral persons. So, again, as in the case of animal welfare, the abolitionist approach to animal rights takes a position with respect to violence because violence is inconsistent with abolishing animal exploitation. Violence is not going to abolish animal exploitation. Violence is only, if anything, going to alienate people and give the public yet another reason to ignore our message and to dismiss the notion of animal rights as something extremist or something that is promoted only by those who are unbalanced or unwell or whatever. But the abolitionist approach rejects violence because it is inconsistent with abolition. It's a matter of logic. It's not a matter of my opinion. It's a matter of logic. In the same way that the notion of animal welfare is inconsistent with abolition, it's inconsistent as a matter of logic. Animal welfare is not going to facilitate or lead toward abolition. It's simply not. As a matter of economics, it can't. And as a matter of, of, of practicality, all animal welfare does is make people feel more comfortable about animal exploitation. So it's going to increase animal exploitation. Similarly, all that violence is going to do is make people feel more comfortable about ignoring issues about animal ethics because they will become associated with those who are extremist or crazy or whatever. I should add, you know, one of the things that I find remarkable is that a number of the people who promote violence are not even vegan. So, apparently it's okay for them to exploit non-human animals, but they think that it's justifiable to inflict violence on others who exploit non-human animals. Interestingly, I've had exchanges with people who state that explicitly that yes, it's quite all right if people are exploiting animals, but yet saving animals because they're, quote, liberators, end quote. That's acceptable. I must confess, I am bewildered by that position. So I hope what I have made clear in this commentary is that the issue of animal welfare the issue of violence, these things are rejected by the abolitionist approach as a matter of logic. They simply don't fit with the position that we cannot morally justify the exploitation of animals and that we ought to abolish the exploitation of animals. If that is the position with which you agree, then you cannot simply, as a logical matter, subscribe to animal welfare or violence. Fortunately or unfortunately, the only choice we have available to us 
is to change hearts and minds. And the only way we're going to do that is through creative, nonviolent, vegan education. And you know, if we invested all of the hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of dollars that we have invested since the 1980s in all of these welfare campaigns or in all of the direct actions or in all of the legal defenses of direct actions, etc., 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 if we took all of that money and we put it into creative, nonviolent vegan education in 1985, we'd have a movement now. We do not have a movement now. We would have something. We would have a movement that held out the realistic promise of abolition. Right now, we have a welfare movement that is doing nothing but making people more comfortable about animal exploitation. And we have a group of people who are promoting violence who are helping to marginalize the issue of animal rights even more. So if you claim to be an abolitionist but endorse animal welfare, the burden's on you to explain to the rest of us how it is that animal welfare is going to do anything to help. How is it that animal welfare is going to lead to abolition when there's no evidence of that? How is it that animal welfare is going to do anything in the short term because the benefits provided by animal welfare are de minimis at best. And they are the sorts of reforms that industry are going to undertake anyway because it's in their economic interest to do so. So why are we wasting the money? If you are someone who says, I'm an abolitionist, but I endorse violence, you need to explain, the burden's on you, you need to explain to us how it is that inflicting violence on humans or engaging in property damage is going to do anything, anything at all, but marginalize this movement even more and give the public an excuse to ignore the message. So the bottom line is, the fact that there are people out there who are saying that they're abolitionists but endorse animal welfare, or that there are people out there who are saying they're abolitionists but endorse violence. No different from people who are out there saying they endorse atomic theory, but they don't believe in atoms. Or they're theists, but they don't believe in God. Or they're atheists, but they do believe in God. The moral of the story is, saying doesn't make it so. Thanks for listening to commentary number eight. If you're not vegan, go vegan. It's incredibly easy. It's better for you. It's better for the planet. And most importantly, it's the morally right thing to do. In the next commentary, unless something else comes up that I want to talk about more, I plan to talk about sexism in the movement because I want to talk about something that is not controversial for a change. Ha ha. Thanks for listening. Visit us at abolitionistapproach.com.